Welcome to the Expand Mind podcast where I speak to creators, entrepreneurs and experts in their field about concepts and topics that not only intrigue me but add a sense of purpose and value to everyday life. I'm Vane Narka, your host in the Expand Mind podcast and in this episode of the podcast I speak to Sam Dakin. Now underneath his fresh face and disarming smile lies a tenacious, humble and extremely focused young athlete. Sam Dakin is an Olympic track cyclist who has studied finance and entrepreneurship. As an elite athlete, Sam has overcome mental health challenges to provide incredible talks on resilience, grit, and having a high-performance mindset. Now, before we continue with this delightfully inciting podcast episode, my request to you is to please support the podcast by following us on social media or subscribing to us on YouTube and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred podcast streaming platform. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Expand on Mind podcast. Really appreciate your time uh, and your, should I say, your journey that you're going to be sharing with us. Um, it sounds fantastic All from what I've researched and seen. Just, it's marvelous. It's my first time speaking to an Olympic athlete. Um, I'd, I remember back in grade two, I used to draw Olympic athletes, and ironically, it was a track cyclist that I drew. And... I can't seem to find it, but if I do yeah. find it, I, I swear, I, I think I should share it on the X-Men Mind social media platforms. But Sam... Oh, that's, yeah. that's epic. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's my, my honor and my pleasure. Um, but Sam, why don't you get us started and just tell us, how did you get to where you are today, this magnificent person that you are? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I started off like any other kid. I was born and raised in, in New Zealand. I was born in Auckland in the big city and have pretty much lived in New Zealand my entire life. I did, um, we did two and a half years when I was really young. Dad had a job in Australia and I did my first year of primary school in um, Sydney in a small town called Kalara, which I remember pretty clearly. It was very hot. Um, we had to wear shoes because the snakes would have bit on our feet otherwise. Um, and then we moved to New Zealand, man, and I was just always a really sporty kid. Um, I was never overly good at sitting still. I'm still not very good at sitting still. I'm twiddling my thumbs with something behind the camera here. And so I think sport was kind of always going to be in my life some way, shape or form. And like every other Kiwi kid, I wanted to play rugby. I wanted to be an all black, but, you know, I started to find cycling when I was about eight years old, I went out mountain biking with my dad and I just loved the freedom that it gave me and the rush of speed and I was the only one in control of, of that bike at any one time and for me that was a really kind of empowering bit at a young age that I had this freedom to go and do it and I tried mountain biking and road cycling and I tried heaps of different other sports. I played volleyball and cricket and table tennis and rugby and um, tried a few other things as well and it it wasn't until probably the end of high school that I really started to fall in love with cycling and that's what I wanted to do and then I realised that probably being an endurance cyclist wasn't for me. I was getting a bit bigger and couldn't go up hills very fast and I tried track one time with some of my, some of my mates and going you know, 65, 70k an hour under your own steam around a, a banking that's 43.5 degrees is at steepest angle and leaning and racing against each other was just something that I just caught the complete buzz of and had a bit of natural talent in it and that's when I kind of said to myself you know I'm going to go to the Olympics one day and I want to see how far I can um, take this thing so I packed up my car and everything I had moved down to Waikato in 2015 to study at university there and live at the halls and 
the Valdromes over in Cambridge, which was only 20 minutes away, and and just chase the dream really. Um, been a hell of a roller coaster of a ride. Uh, lots of different stories, which I'm sure we'll get stuck into today. And it's all culminated into to kind of living the dream I am today. You know, founding a business, being an Olympian, and and just living a, a pretty amazing life really, which is um, you know. Fortunately, brought us to have this conversation today, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, um, and Sam, you spoke about like uh, having s- playing sports, all these different sports, um, taking part in them, participating, or playing them. Um, how did you actually balance it? Your academics and your sports. Like, I know sports in so- South Africa, for example, it's like if you don't go to a sports school, it's like kind of academics full way. Um, how did you balance it? I-, I don't know how New Zealand works, so why don't you give us a little bit of a and mind for sure yeah i think i've always had a fortunately had a natural kind of ability to time manage really well i'm i'm not a perfectionist like i don't need to get things done to the nth degree for for me to be satisfied with them i like i have a perfectionist perfectionist tendency but i wouldn't say i do everything to the to the detail so I think a large part of how I managed it was that when I was doing something, I was all in, I did it the best I could, but then I moved on to the next thing and then I, I moved on to the next thing. So I was really careful with the amount of time I allotted to things. So when I had time to do schoolwork or academic work, I just, I had an hour, I did as much as I could in an hour and then I moved on. Um, and I found for me that just worked really well, that I could get, you know, the old saying goes, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. And I was kind of, that's how I operated. If you gave me a lot of time, I actually didn't get a lot done. Um, I do, I function better when I have a lot going on and I like juggling a lot of balls and I always have from a really young age and that's how I operated throughout high school as well. And I think being active actually gave me the ability to sit down and do those things. It was kind of that release of that dopamine and that serotonin that you know made me want to study or to, to learn more. And if I didn't do that, I was a bit cranky. I was... You know, I just wasn't overly productive. Um, so for me, it was, you know, it was about time management. It was about being in when I'm in and out when I'm out and just, yeah, being careful with the time I had. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of time management, like how did school, uh, at school, like I, I, don't, I don't know if you like had extracurricular clubs where you had to do private clubs and so forth. Um, but how did you actually actually have your what what is your teacher's impressions of you during your school hours and so forth were you like the should i say a teacher's pet or were you like the the teacher's most disliked student or you're just like the average student um i would say my my peers would have described me as as a teacher's pet for sure um and I think in, in New Zealand, we're really guilty of tall poppy syndrome. And, and if someone tries, it's not really that cool. And I was probably the, the kid that tried really hard at a lot of things um, because I saw the potential in them and I kind of didn't really enjoy doing something if I wasn't going to make something of it because I just felt like that was a waste of time. Um, so, yeah, I was I was very much a teacher's pet. But I also had a, I had a bit of a disruptive side to me or a bit of an anger switch um, throughout my youth. And I've still got that anger in me it's just bottled all the way down and it takes a lot to boil it up now but when I was younger I couldn't control it and I'd, I'd just snap I'd just lose lose the plot in the middle of class or do something really dumb or silly or you know at home it was smashing windows or throwing a cricket bat at my brother or you know I'd, I'd see red and and I couldn't control it at a at a young age and it was it was quite scary you know growing up through that and, I, and my parents were amazing they just 
put trust, I guess, in their in their parenting that I would understand that and grow out of it, and and I did. Um, and it's it's still there, but I know how to control those parts. So whilst I was a, I guess a, a self-described teacher's pet at high school, I still had a kind of imperfect side to me. Um, throughout that time, controlling well, yeah. your anger and so forth. How did you actually start mani- managing the anger? Where did the anger management start come from? Did it come personally, or did you like start seeking help from people? Or were there was there some tactics or tools that you just mentally start performing? Yeah. I think it was probably much more of an organic kind of understanding as I grew up and matured more than anything. I think as I got older, I understood the consequences of what kind of that that anger was showing. You know, I'll take the example of, of throwing something at my brother. You know, I could visibly see that that hurt him and that was extremely unnecessary just because I was losing a game of backyard cricket. So you start to actually understand the effects that you're having on people. And once I could do that, it gave me a bit more of a reason to control it. And it was just a matter of, Honestly, man, just taking just taking a deep breath, gaining a little bit of perspective, um, because when you when you are angry and you and you want to act, you just see red and you see fire. You've kind of got to bring yourself back to the thinking and rational stage, and and breathing is the is the best, the most simple way to do that. And it's it's an exercise. Breathing is is what's got me through a lot of really tough times. It's something I still do on the start line now, as I as I breathe and I visualize. Um, what they call blue brain and red brain. Um, so blue brain being the cool, calm, collected side. You know, you're decisive, but you're clear thinking, you understand your situation, you know what's going on. The red is the the flames, the anger, the, you know, the hypeness that you have in sport. And I always I always want a little bit of that. Our sport's aggressive, it's, it's manly, it's fast, it's aggressive. You know, and I, I put that, and I visualize having a little bit of that, but with a really clear brain. And when you can mix the two together, that's when you get a really powerful um, performance. So anger and fury, is, has, it has a place. It has a place in, in a person in sport, but it's just learning how to channel that and, and use it at the right time. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and I yeah. think we can also think about it in the same academic field. Like I, I'm not much of a sports player. I'm more of a gymmer and so forth. I used to play mm. golf, but... Mm. Um, mm golf is nowhere in comparison to cycling or anything like that so how do you actually channel that anger or that frustration or that should i say vent out just vent out so i know that for me personally going to the gym and uh after a long day frustrating day or anything like that happens for me i can probably bench something up 80 kilos straight up and that's just like venting me uh, venting out it's better to take it out like that how do you take how do you take out that vent uh, how do you vent basically um quite quite a few different ways and it's it's matured as i've got older i used to punch a pillow that used to be that's what used my mum used to go and tell me to do because that hurt no one but it got out the same effect um these days, there's probably two or three things I do. If I'm having a really bad time, just screaming as loud as you possibly can in the car where no one can hear you is a really great way to just like actually get the frustration out of your body. Um, and it's a really weird thing to do, but also quite empowering at the same time. I love music. Um, I listen to a lot of music. I pretty much have it playing all the time. So that's a, that's a big one for me. Um, just sing, put some music on, sing in the car, I don't know, dance around the room, look like a fool. Um, or go for a walk. Probably the the two or three things I would use these days when I'm really, really frustrated and really angry. Um, that's what I'll go and do because 
you have to process it and you have to deal with it. It's, it's ridiculous to say, nah, just go away because clearly what you're angry or frustrated about is pretty big. Um, and as you get older, it gets harder and harder to make you really angry. And particularly for me now, it, it, I'm much more calm in my demeanor that when I'm getting really angry and frustrated, there's a lot of boiled up stuff. Um, and the one scream might not be enough. It might be a scream, a walk, and then listen to some music. Or, you know, if it's stuff you want to deal with and talk about, it's, you know, actually reaching out to a mate and going, hey, bro, do you want to grab a beer tonight or go and get a coffee? Or do you want to go for a walk? You know, I think we should normalize men walking a lot more. Uh, and I'm guilty of, of going down the street and you see a bloke out for a walk. That's a bit weird. Or there's, you know, I can't think of the last time I saw two men out walking together having a talk. But it's a great it's a great way to connect and share some thoughts and um, yeah I think that's that's a big one for me. You say you walk around with friends and so forth, um, but I actually I, I can't mm. actually relate to the friend part. Um, where when you how do you actually find that person where you can talk to? Uh, what what characteristics do you look for when you want to talk to somebody? Uh, where's the trust coming from? What 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 is it that that person has to uniquely outline for you to be able to talk to them? Um, I think I've always been fortunate that I've, I've been surrounded by friends that I just felt like I could talk about that stuff with and I think that's as a result of, of how mum and dad raised us and I always had a father that was, wasn't was a traditional Kiwi bloke always and he showed his emotions and you could see his feelings and, and same with mum. So I think for me the, the trust actually came from within that almost I was just going to tell this person what I need to get out because I just need to get it out to someone and what you find is even the people that are the most reserved and you think won't give you much back when you're really vulnerable and, and show yourself to them the natural human interaction is to listen and to do the same um, I've had very few times where it's been if, if any where it's been kind of poorly received but I think it's important that you know, you know the person, you've spent time with them, you trust them with what you're saying if it's, if it's quite sensitive information and you don't want other people hearing it. And I think you've just got to trust yourself and make that judgment call. There's no one, two, three things that I look for in a person to talk to about. It's just do I feel comfortable and if I do, yes, then, then I'll talk to them. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm 25 now. I've, I've, had, I've got some friends I've had for 10 years now. Um, or my, you know, my great mate Callum. I've known him all the way through cycling, and, and we always talk about this sort of stuff together. And that's just something we do. Um, and you know, you 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 find those people in your life, and I understand that not everyone has that. Um, and there's other mechanisms out there to go and talk to people about this stuff, whether it's helplines or psychologists. And psychologists, are a big one. I see a psychologist every week, every. Every elite athlete now, if they're not seeing a psychologist, uh, there's a performance piece missing. Like it's it's such a critical part of what we do. And surprisingly enough, I barely ever talk to performance with my performance psychologist. It's about me. It's about life. It's about delving into the deeper issues um, of you as a person. Because when you get those right, your performance will just will just fly. Anyways, you're kind of just teetering on the top. Yeah. Um, with those things but i'll flip it back what do you what do you do what do you kind of if you had to talk to someone what we what would you be looking for and also how would you vent your 
frustration i'd be yeah, quite interested to know when it comes to frustration and and anger and sort and that sort of thing I, i prefer to be alone because i also have that very short temper where if i lose it like something will go flying or something like that and i try to keep it deep down yeah. inside me i've learned very young uh, at a very young stage that yes i have a short a very very short temper and for me personally i still will go and apologize to the person if i've if i've done something it's like some, something of my self consciousness that okay i've done something wrong i need to go back and apologize so when i look for somebody yeah. to talk to it's normally my mom um my dad yeah like like you said that your your dad was quite open with the, his emotions and so forth like now i think like with the indian parents especially the dads like they're very afraid to show emotions and it's i, I don't know what's up with that Yeah. but i've been encouraged to actually show emotions in whatever i do um whether it's uh, i get a really yeah. bad grade i'm really not happy with it. come home talk to uh, talk to my mom and mm. I'll, i'll probably like vent out or mm. i'll even like yeah. i remember back in grade 8 I, i think i'd lost an award for for some godly or odd reason I, i actually don't remember but i do remember coming home and crying and when i look for that somebody mm. i think the, one of the characteristics that i look for is are they going to be able to share that same uh, are they going to be able to share with me the same things that i'm sharing with them will they come to me if they ever need a hand out uh, uh, like somebody just to sh- a shoulder to lean on basically um i i just want i actually expressly ask them will you come to me if like if you have any problems like this i don't want to like be yeah. a burden on your shoulder um when you're not going to be a burden on mine so it's like kind of reciprocating in both ways like i'm going to be there for you you um you need to be there for me it's like this works a two way street so that's like one of the mm. things that i look for yeah and no, it's, it's it's always interesting to hear different perspectives right because everyone's got everyone's different everyone deals with it differently and i think that's the big thing is people need to figure yeah. out what works for and, you and i think like one of the uh, from what i've summed up in thus far uh, it is that you've had a good friend circle um you've had a good support mm. system which are your parents your brother uh you've had all of that type of things so what's the main what's the motivation besides those those factors like your friends your your family uh what is the what motivated you to become a person a sports person or an athlete um i just always wanted to be the best really to be honest um i always liked winning i'm i'm very competitive person anything i do and i saw an opportunity and believed that i could get to the top of the world um in this in this particular sport and i was and i'm relentless about it i still haven't got there i might never get there um but that's that's what gets me out of bed every day and i just genuinely love what i do i love that i get up and i go to the gym and like i've got gym tomorrow morning at 8am and i'm excited i haven't trained in two days i'm i'm genuinely excited to turn up there and just do that um you know and and that keeps me motivated every day and and when i start to lose that that's probably when it's time to to shut up shop um but for the meantime i just want to become the the best athlete i can be which i truly believe is is to be the best in the world at, at some point in my career and i know my family and my friends would be proud of me if i quit today and i went and did something else so you know it's not they're a part of my journey um but they will be proud of me regardless so to say I just do it for them would would be a lie that wouldn't be true you know I do it very much for myself um it's a very it's a very selfish 
endeavor and journey sport is and um you know i'm the one that has to get up every day i'm the one that has to suffer i'm the one that goes to bed at night with the loss and but when i win you know i want you want that good support network there and those friends because you want to celebrate it with them because they've ridden the wave with you they've been so a part of it um particularly my family my brother my sister mum dad like they've they've seen it all they've seen the angry sam the the really happy one the one in between the one that's struggling and and when it all comes together and you get to go out for dinner with them and celebrate it's Mm. unbeatable and you know i dream about that night that we get to do that when i'm wearing rainbow stripes or an olympic gold medal around my neck and it's those it's those type of visions that that get me out of bed on the hard days and, yeah. and keep me motivated and speaking about that you, you kind of had that when you when you started off the start of saying that you like winning it's like starting like harvey specter just speaking there 101 it's like i only win I, my yeah, game yeah, yeah. is here and everybody else is here and i think i yeah. paraphrased that but yeah it'd be interesting to know what sacrifices did you make did you find hardest to make in to make your career in sports basically yeah it's it's an interesting one the word the word sacrifice because i've always looked at it as a choice like yeah you give it you give away some stuff but i i actively decided that i wasn't going to do this because i was going to get something else i felt was better um but there is there is times like i look at university and i get i first year i lived the uni life i loved it it wasn't conducive to sport but i felt that was all i needed as as a as personally for me i didn't need four years of partying and alcohol and all that stuff i just felt that you know i got it and i had a great friend group i met heaps of people that i'm still friends with now um but that was always hard watching people go through university you know i wasn't at class i didn't you know i graduated kind of by myself so i missed out on that stuff which is hard but at the same time i i still feel like what i've got now was was worth kind of missing out on on some of those aspects i got to travel the world and do all this amazing things and you know holidays are a big one family holidays it's really hard to align schedules to get away with the family these days and and see them um but on the whole it's it's pretty amazing to be honest there's not too many things and i think the way sports shifted now with the balance of mental health well-being and performance we're seeing a much more balanced holistic approach to how we do how we do sport and how we live our lives so it's not you need to be focused 100 percent all the time if you do anything else you'll fail it's much more hey when you're at training and in competition you're in but when you're out of it you actually need to switch off and go and do some other stuff mm. um you know over the easter break i went i went surfing and i went for a mountain bike and i went walking and i just just lived just just be a normal human and then you actually come back really refreshed so i think the way we're doing sport now is a lot more healthy and conducive to be able to do it for a long time and and you will hopefully leave sport a much kind of happier person but for me those the, the biggest and hardest sacrifices would have been those you know those key moments with with friends or family that i may have missed because i've been away at a competition or had a big train day and you know those are the hard ones but i definitely don't don't lose sleep at night because i was at peace with the decisions i made in in those moments to to miss it yeah that's interesting sam you spoke many people that i've spoken uh, well that i've seen or seen on your website and so forth which are linked Mm -hmm. down in the description boxes below um you speak they speak about your grit and your resilience 
What does resilience mean to you? Because I think many people think that it's just something that we're describing anybody's characteristic, oh, I'm resilient. What does it mean to you? It's like a, to me, it's a, a fearlessness to just keep going, regardless of, of what happens. Like, get knocked down time and time again and still get back up. And I think every time I've had a setback, I've, I've flipped it into this exciting moment if I've had an injury I've gone okay well this gives me time to work on this area that I haven't had a chance to work on I'm going to come back stronger and you're kind of you're relentlessly positive and in, in a time where you really probably shouldn't be you know you kind of and, and you paint this picture that you're going to come back stronger and better and for me that's what it was always about is is using those times to to reassess and to reflect and then come back in a better place because it's not actually often you you get forced to slow down and to question and to analyze the small details until something forces you to do it because otherwise you're so fast moving so i always took those opportunities those resilience opportunities essentially is, is what you might frame them as as times to get excited about the future again and that reset point and it was always a great time to go do i really love this do i really want to do it yes um and and, it, and someday it it might be a no, I don't know. But that's they're, they're really important points to keep questioning what you're doing and, and challenging what you are. So, yeah, for me, resilience is just being fearless in the pursuit of greatness because you will get kicked down time and time again. No, it's not going to be Yeah, I, yeah. I, made an actual, I made a note here about resilience, how you define it. I've been noting sure, all of like iconic statements from every, every podcast guest, and I think that's a really nice. great one on your side. But if you can expand on one, why is resilience an important skill for an athlete to cultivate? I think because we deal with it daily, because there's not, I haven't lived the normal life of a 25 year old. So, you know, I'll make some comments on it, but it might not be overly accurate. But, you know, you go to university and you have your job and there's this pretty stable kind of thing happening. You, you might go get your degree then you get your graduate job and then you do that and then you you step up there's not this whereas as an athlete you know every day i might not there's there's little things that will go wrong or i might not lift enough weight so i'm pushed back there and then i'm going slow on the track so it's another challenging day there i've lost a race on saturday but then i've got to go out on sunday like there's this constant reminder that you need to be better or you're ahead of where you need to be so and you always lose a lot more than you win. That's just the reality of, of sport. And you've got constant measures of that. So if you can't handle essentially the ability to be knocked down, then you're just not going to succeed because it'll eat away at you and it'll just crush you. And what you see with a lot of athletes is the more they get knocked down, if they don't have that resilience aspect to them, it just becomes harder and harder to come back each time because they're fearful that they'll get knocked back again and then... You know, are they going to be able to come back? Will they be able to get to where they were again? Oh, no. And it's this, this panic mode. Mm. But when you can have that ability, it's, it's much easier. And kind of what I'd lump into resilience is adaptability at the same time, right? It kind of fits in really well because when you get knocked down, you have to adapt to the new normal. You kind of have to sideswipe what's just happened. And <clears throat> the Olympics were a prime example. I watched, you know, 25, 30 athletes all my mates get told the olympics has moved a year yeah. i reckon three four days people are going yep yeah, cool sweet it's in a year no 
no one was losing their mind. Like, yeah, it was tough for people at times, but most of them were just like, yeah, cool, that's the new date. Let's get on with it. And that's a pretty amazing thing to do when people have committed their entire lives to an event that's happening on the 1st of August 2020. And all of a sudden, someone's like, it's now on the 1st of August 2021. And people have gone, yeah, cool, sweet, reassess, move. And as athletes, we probably don't appreciate how impressive that actually is. But when I've stood back and and, and looked at that and talked to other people about it, that's that's an unbelievable quality to have. Because when you take that into business or into the real world, kind of nothing's overly stressful when you're able to adapt and work with things on the fly, which is what happens on the sports field and it's just at a much faster pace. Yeah. So when you, when you have this adaptability... Um, persona and understanding and pair that with resilience you've got this really powerful ability to kind of take any rock or, or wall that's that's thrown at them and if you don't have that in your athletic career you'll find it really really hard to achieve there would be very few people in their career that that would have excelled without being able to be resilient or adaptable yeah. So, so that you've brought up like quite a few points about reflection in your in your in what you said so far, um, mm. and why do you? Uh, from what you're saying, reflection is a big part in what, what in how you cultivate resilience and so forth. Um, how do you advise to the young generation or the generation to come in athletes and so forth? How do you advise yeah. them to advise them to start reflecting on their actions? Like I know in in academics, I've spoken about this in other podcast episodes, mm. that reflection is a vital part in whatever you do. Um, but I don't think I think don't think students or people, young people, young adults, and so forth understand how do they actually start reflecting. What, what's where's the beginning phase? What type of sort of question line do they ask themselves? Where, where does it begin? And maybe you can expand upon that, Sam. Yeah, like for me, it's changed heaps over the years. Like currently, I, I keep a, a journal, a diary that I write in most days. Some days I forget. Sometimes it's once a week. Um, I kind of really just, I should do it more. But for me, I kind of just write down what's ever in my head, to be honest. There's no super structure to it. Someday I'll list down some thoughts or some key learnings from a race or something that's happening in my life. Um, like when I was, you know, I battled really bad with OCD for one and a half to two years. I still have it a little bit now. But in the midst of that, in the in the real grim days of that, I just it was just a way for me to get everything out of my head onto a piece of paper and I could I could see it and when I could see it I could reflect on it and understand you know so for for young people it, it doesn't have to be complicated get a book like everyone's got a phone write it down on your phone on your laptop anywhere it's just take some time whether it's once a week or daily whatever you feel is best and you know there's kind of a couple of ways you could do it you can do it as a reflection on your entire day, what's happened, what did, what was really cool, what was, you know, some tough parts of your day. Is there anything you know you could have proved, improved in, in class or with your friends, and then just just leave it. Don't don't overthink it too much. It doesn't have to be complicated. It's yours, and no one else has to see it. And that's the cool part. Because when I first started reflecting, I kind of didn't put the honest thoughts down on the page, and I still struggle a little bit at times because. I'm always worried that I'm going to have to show it to someone or someone else is going to see it. So keep it really simple and keep it really personable in a way that, that you're kind of going to understand it. Um, and, un, 
you know, the, the reflection part is just about learning for the future. It's just about looking at what you've done, the learnings you've had throughout the day, and how can you take those into the next day. You know, it's just it's just about making yourself better. But it's also a great time to look at what great stuff you've done because the, we all move so fast at the moment. The world of social media and digital and you know how fast everyone's growing up that we forget to sit back and go, no, what I actually did was was pretty awesome today and I worked really, really hard for it and write that down and look at it for a second and go, yeah, no, I, I did achieve that. You know, a prime example was we had some racing over the weekend. It was three days back to back to back. And when I was reflecting last night, I was like, I made two two or three mistakes out of 24 races, you know, and, and you know, there would have been 80, 90 odd moments where I had to make decisions in that and I made two or three mistakes. And that was something that if I hadn't written down, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have picked up on. And that really, that really got me excited. I was like, that's a big shift for me in performance that I was able to consistently put together every single day near perfect riding, near perfect tactics. So I think sometimes you get nothing from it and sometimes you gain a whole lot from it. But if you don't give it the chance to reflect, then you won't. So the, the, the key thing is to keep it really simple, nothing complicated and, and it's yours, make it yours. You spoke about pressure as well, and also reflecting back on that that point, like uh, during this weekend that you had three races, and um, the pressure and how do we play, pressure and resi resilience play a dual-handed role? And correct me if I'm wrong. How does one be resilient when under pressure? If, if that if that's like making sense on your side, Sam. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, and I don't know if there's a if, if I have a clear answer for it, so I'll, I'll try and describe best I can. I think the the pressure is always a perception thing, and we always say that pressure is earned as well. So so when you have pressure, it's because you're in a situation that you've put yourself in, which is usually important, and you've worked hard to get there. So first of all, you need to acknowledge that you know it's it's actually a great thing to be in to have pressure. It's really cool, and then. You, then you've got to give it a perspective. Then you've got to step back and go, you know, there's a famous saying that I can't remember who said it, but it really stuck with me. It was like, who, what about me? Like what actually happens if, you know, you fail the exam or you don't win? What what actually happens? Well, what actually happens when you lose is that someone's watching on the TV and they go, oh, that's not good. And then they turn it off is, is usually what happens. You, you live with it a lot more than you probably think everyone else does. So when you can step those two things back and understand what the pressure really is, then that that dilutes it a little bit and gives you a bit more perspective to the situation. So I would say you first have to deal with the pressure. You have to understand, you have to give it perspective. And then you can start to be resilient within that situation and you can bounce back from whatever's happened because you're not worried about the outcome of getting back up or what's next and what's after that. You've just got to focus one step at a time. So when you get knocked back, you figure out, okay, well, how do I get the left foot in front of the right and then the right in front of the left? And then I get walking. Okay, and now I'm moving. Okay, now I can see the play. I've made the play. What's the next play? Um, is, is, does that kind of answer the question? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does especially like the part where you, where you showed the dual-handed role, especially as, you, um, as yourself as an athlete. Um, and, and Sam, like you've been to university, so you've been through the all the movements of academics as well as in sports. Mm. Um, 
how did you actually manage manage that pressure that came with academics? Because university is not not something, especially like what sure. you've studied, which is um, you you've done business and, uh, and analytics if, analysis, if I'm right, mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, with a major in finance and then also a postgraduate diploma in mm-hmm. innovation and entrepreneurship, and that comes into a, how did you actually combine that with your sports? How did you actually manage that? That pressure that comes from academics, that 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 uh, I think that characteristic thing you that says I always mm. I want to win. I, that's that's my mm. number one goal. How did you actually like balance mm. that out? That's it's a good question because it used to be all-consuming in the first couple years of of university. You know, I wanted to I wanted to win on the sports field, and I also wanted to win in the classroom. And I think I started to learn that I probably couldn't do both to the same degree um i wasn't naturally a genius or or really smart like i was definitely not stupid and i had some smarts but a a lot of the a lot of the results from that came from just doing the hard work and i found that with sport and fatigue that came with that there was only a certain amount of energy that i could apply to my studies so i think after about year two or three of university i didn't devolve the pressure entirely from my studies but I was like look it's it's okay if I'm getting a, a B or a really low grade sometimes because I'm, I am trying you know I'm, I'm giving it my all but something has to give sometimes and I think once I put myself at ease with the academic side of things and that I didn't need to be the top student or getting A pluses all the time because I had this other focus in sport it actually all became a lot easier I think in turn I actually ended up getting better grades because taking from sport this don't worry about the outcome focus on the process when I actually finally put two and two together and took that back across to academics it it worked really well because I wasn't going I need the A I need the A plus or I need to be top of the class it was just I've got this assignment or I've got this group thing to do let's just work through it and let's and let's see where we get to Mm. um so yeah they, they kind of went hand in hand but I, I had to give at some times and I and I, I definitely did and then when I got to my postgrad stuff it was actually just a lot more about enjoying what I was doing you know that that postgrad cert that I did in, in entrepreneurship and innovation was one of the coolest university courses I've done and it was entirely online um, through Harvard Extension University but it was a really practical applicable kind of course to something I wanted to do, which was to found my own business one day and get into that world. And I didn't really have much, I don't have much interest in doing the traditional kind of nine to five at a big corporate, like I want to be starting my own thing. And um, I think startup culture is really cool. It's fast moving. It's really similar to sport. You've got to hustle. Um, So when I could actually study and and learn that, I just got better grades um, because I enjoyed it. And it was something I wanted to put time into. So I took also what I learned from academics and, and threw it back into sport. But it, it goes back to the same thing I learned in high school, just manage your time well, apply and be deliberate with when you're going to do something and don't be distracted. You know, I'm always a, a big fan of you're always two feet in, don't have one foot out because if you can have two feet in for an hour, that's much more productive than having one foot in for three hours. Yeah. Yeah, and I find that very, very interesting. You spoke about um, entrepreneurship and innovation in starting your own own business. Uh, Sam, why don't you give us an overview of what Podium is? Uh, I'll give you the stand here. 
For sure, yeah. It's so it's it's a platform that connects currently New Zealand athletes with uh, employment opportunities, and it was really born out of myself and my good mate and, and teammate Callum Saunders seeing this this real gap between the skills that athletes had and kind of businesses needing talent, um, and we wanted to somehow figure out how we could connect the two. And what we were also seeing is that athletes were coming to the end of their career with a couple of degrees like I had, but they never worked a day in their life. So yeah. they're 10 years behind the workforce with no experience. They got no one advocating for their skills that they've learned throughout high performance sport, which are actually really applicable directly into the business world. So we, that that's kind of what Podium was, was formed to do was to, to bridge that gap. So we launched in October, 2021, we've done 18, 19 placements of athletes. We've also started doing a few speaking engagements and we've built a really amazing kind of relationship and platform with a lot of different employers, a lot of, have lost a, a vast array of industries. Yeah. And we've got athletes working full time that have retired or also still competing. And then we've got athletes that are also still competing, but keen to work 20 hours a week to kind of further that understanding of what they want to do for when they leave sport and, and better prepare them. So that's a, I guess that's a pretty brief overview on, on what Podium does. And, you know, we're doing in New Zealand at the moment, we do really want to take it around the world because we think it's a key aspect of that overall holistic picture of the athlete life cycles that you need to gain some job experience. And you get to see and have stuff outside of sport and that's that's a big thing to help your mental health is that when you're having a bad day on the rugby field or on in cycling that you've got this other positive thing to go home to which is your work or your study or a hobby you've got going yeah i like the i like what you've done with podium and so forth why don't you just give us like a brief overview of how it started um and mm -hmm. How, how have you scaled it up? You've already had so much of success. You've had 18 placements, as you said. Mm. Um, that, that is quite rapid, like for, from October 2021, that's also when I started mm. the Expand Mind, so ironic, um, which, yeah. is, which is like for a little bit faster. I'm, I understand that I'm still in school and so forth, and I have <laughs> a, lot, a lot, of, lot more. Uh, I think yeah, yeah, academics yeah. is still, I need to get into university. So why don't you just give us like an overview of, how this all started for you? Like, where did the origin of sure. this idea come up for you? Yeah, so we were, it was actually, the origin of the idea came from our former coach, Renee Wolf. Um, so he's an ex-track sprint cyclist. He was Olympic champion in 2004 in, in Athens, sprint world champion in 2005. He then got into coaching um, the Dutch team for eight years before he started coaching us here in New Zealand. And he's... He had a degree in, in literature science and he's a really philosophical guy. And when he came to Cambridge, which is quite a small town, it's pretty much made up of retirement people, young families and high performance athletes. So this Cambridge itself services 50% of New Zealand's Olympic athletes. And he just saw this real divide between local business and athletes was kind of the, the basis of it. And he had this idea that, you know, they should be better connected through multiple different ways. And he kind of came to Callum and I and it was, he's like, I don't have the time, nor do I really want to do anything with it, but I think you guys could do something pretty cool. You know, we just finished our degrees and he was a big advocate of people having more than just sport, you know, having stuff outside their sport. So Callum and I kind of put our minds together and we're like, and we'd kind of heard a little bit about recruitment and what that kind of industry was like. And 
it made the most sense at that time to, to essentially build a platform, a beta platform initially, that we were literally just going to have job postings that were athlete-friendly, essentially. They were flexible. The business understood that they would be an athlete. The timeframes were a little bit different. So that was the original thing. We called it Athlete Community Link. Community link. And when you shorten that, it's, it's ACL is the acronym, which is obviously a common sporting injury, injury that ends people's careers. So we started off really locally with that um, and we didn't actually place anyone during that time because that was only like probably a month or six weeks and by the time we got it up and running I ended up on a, on a call with a guy called Hamish Price through a mutual family friend of ours who worked for a company called Haynes Attract which was a nationwide recruitment company and I was, I was just calling him to get some help. Um, to kind of understand more about the industry and, and how one might do it. And he was so intrigued by the idea that he kind of came back to, we went back and forwards and they wanted to, to be business partners with us and, and pump a bit of cash into it and, and help us scale. So we did a a bit of a rebrand and called it Podium and I've, I've missed a key bit actually. So I'll, back, I'll backtrack before I talk to Hamish. We had a piece on the news, on national news here in New Zealand, um, on, on TVNZ, so the, the major broadcaster, about what we were doing. And and a guy called Jake Rigger down in Wellington saw it, just a young guy, same age as me, 25, was working in IT recruitment, um, went to Waikato University, which we didn't know at the time, which was the same place Callum and I went to. And I woke up in the morning and there was a message from this guy, Jake, and he said, hey, mate, um, I'm in recruitment in Wellington and saw your thing on the news. It's awesome. I love sport. Um, my parents happen to live in Cambridge. Do you want to grab a coffee um, when I'm up next? I said, yeah, mate, of course. So Calum and I grabbed a coffee and he, he kind of pitched pitched himself to us really. He said, look, I don't, you know, I'm, I've got this job in Wellington, but I'm pretty keen to, to change it and to move on. And I think this is what I could offer you guys. Um, what do you reckon? And Calum and I were kind of looking for someone to, to potentially run it full time whilst obviously we were competing and we would contribute where we can and and then when Haynes Attract came on board we had a bit of money so we could fund him and he came on as a shareholder and a co-founder and it's just grown from there really and he's been he's been pivotal um, to that success he's been the hustler there every day getting on the phones calling people up um, and it's just grown from there really and you know we've we've got some really cool ideas on how we can scale it even bigger in the future. I think we can, what we're doing well is, is building a community and a platform full of high performing businesses and high performing people. And that's going to be an absolute asset in one way, shape or form around the world if we can continue to grow that. And you know, the knowledge that you can share within that community, you know, and it's similar to, to what Crimson have, have done on the academic side of things, but um, you know, sports are really untapped market for its knowledge, I think. And, and it's talent that, that businesses can link into. So that's kind of where we're at at the moment. And that's the story of, of where we've got to. So at the moment, it's just three, three 25 um, year old men trying to take on the world really. And, you know, we're always looking at how we can further expand. And, but our main objective is, is to help athletes and, and to make their careers better. And particularly for when they leave sport to ensure that they're better prepared. Mm. No, that's brilliant that you're helping I've often heard and I've watched some films as well and documentaries of how athletes have just been like abandoned after they're done with like okay you're done you can't you can't yep. do anything and, and I see the problem that you're trying to tackle and it looks like you've been successful thus far which is amazing and I wish you all the best on that um, but 
that's one of your successes uh, and it's one of the massive successes besides Mm. uh, being an olympic track cyclist you've had have your business but what would you say is one of your failures and this ties into resilience um how have you actually what what did you advise to people and on on how you've actually bounced back from a failure so what is your failure your greatest failure uh, and how have you bounced back from it That's a good question. I, I would say my greatest failure would be would be the the battle I had with my mental health. Like I, I let that, I didn't talk about it for so long that I just let it completely eat away at me to the point where I hit absolute rock bottom. You know, I was I was down south with um, Callum actually, and we were going home in a car, and I just burst out in tears for you know. 15 20 minutes hysterically and I was just I was just in absolute pieces I was you know depressed and I hadn't talked about it I hadn't properly dealt with it even though I said I had I was kind of dishonest with myself to where I was at and I think for me that that really hit home as as a massive failure Um, but it took it took to that point for me to realize that no I actually need to go out and fix this like I had tried but I hadn't really tried hard enough I need to keep talking and I need to keep on top of things, not just when it's a little bit good, I'm okay. I need to keep pushing through the uncomfortable conversations. I needed to keep looking for answers. I needed to talk to the psychologist. Each week until I was generally on top of this stuff. And it, you know, it affected my friends and family. It affected the way I interacted with with them and the people around me. And I, you know, I dragged them down as well. And I'm not saying mental health is a failure. I don't want that to sound at all because it's it's not like it affects all of us. But for me personally, when I had talked about it and accepted it, but then kind of let it just keep chewing away at me and back on top of me, I think for me that was really hard to deal with that I felt like I'd let myself down um, was a big one. There's been a lot in sport, but it's been more... It's been more pressure orientated, like I've let the pressure get the better of me and I've failed as a result and I haven't put my best foot forward. And, you know, every athlete has these races that, you know, I can still remember them now. I close my eyes at night and they pain me, but I just don't think about them because I can't change them. Um, But I can learn from them. So I think, and how how did I come back from them? That that fearlessness to, to, to be better and... With the mental health stuff, it was the fearlessness to live. It was the fearlessness that life was going to be better, that I could get better, that the sun would come up tomorrow, that my life's going to be great. And I was just relentless about it. And that that for me has always been my key thing about mm. any challenges. Now nah, I'm going to get, I'm going to come back and I will be better. Yeah. Watch me. Yeah, I, I like the I like the way like the fearlessness that you're speaking about. But uh, mm. Sam, I, I think one of the parts, and if you're comfortable with talking about it, uh, mm. it's your mm. mental health, what you went went through. Uh, I'd like I think our audience and myself would like to hear, especially as an athlete, that we mm. I would think that an athlete has no problems at all. It's mm. one of the biggest myths. It's like thinking that that a doctor has no problems at all because they're making money, but money ain't the only the revolving factor. It's your mental health that we put into, and that's why the expand mind came alive. 
Sam, why don't you give us a, a overview of what happened? You don't have to give us the most intricate details if you're not comfortable, but yeah, we'd, we'd just like to hear what, what exactly happened. Sure, man. Yeah, no, I'm more than happy to. So for me, it started in 2018. So I was 22 years old. I, you know, I, I had that stuff. I had anger issues we talked about, but I never really understood what, what mental issues were. And I woke up one day and it was June something, 2018, I remember, because I was in I was in a place called T-Town, the States, where we go to each year. And I just had this thought come into my head that, you know, really questioned who I was. And, and largely it was about my kind of sexuality and stuff like that. And I won't dive too deep into it because it'll just convolute the story but it started for an hour a day and it was just it was just this random thought and i was like yeah cool don't worry but then this thought started happening two hours a day and there was three hours a day and it was constantly on repeat it's kind of the best way to describe it was imagine everything you've you believe in imagine that and then someone questioning whether you believe in it every single hour of the day 16 hours a day for two years you know you, you start to kind of doubt everything that's that's happened and i never understood what it was i did so much reading i did so much googling and i was i was honestly just losing the plot because there was just this rotating thought in my head but i had no answers to it and and because it was an uncomfortable thing to talk about i never talked about it i just did i just kind of left it in my head so that was 2018 and you know that that thought built up to that 16 hour day point over a year or a, a year and a half and it wasn't I've spoken about this before and it wasn't until I stumbled across a, a reddit feed um, of, of all places that I started reading I was like that's exactly what I'm thinking um, and it was just this instant relief because someone else was dealing with it and I now had an answer to it which was which was OCD and it was the form of what they call pure O OCD so there's, there's two types of OCD you have your um, physical things which is like you have to turn the light switches off 20 times or um, you have to clean the dishwasher or, or whatever it is so that's a physical thing that you're obsessed with that you need to do in order to move on but the other side is called pure o which is what i have which is entirely internal and it's called it's called the doubting disease as well so you start to doubt a lot of things and you question all the stuff and you just have rolling thoughts on repeat on repeat on repeat so that's what i had to deal with and it wasn't till i found that that i then told my mom and I was like this is what's going on and she was amazing and found me a psychiatrist in Auckland called Jock Matthews that um, we were at Worlds at the time and I landed back from Berlin on a Wednesday and I went and saw him on a Thursday and for me that was the real turning point where I could just get all this stuff this really really uncomfortable stuff that I didn't want to talk about out to someone that, that understood me and that's kind of where the I guess recovery journey started but it took me it took me 24 odd months um, before I got to that point to actually talk about it um, and to deal with it. And it was really hard, really, really hard. Um, it's still it's still tough sometimes, but I understand it now. And for me, that was the biggest part is that I had an answer to, to my thoughts. And what it taught me is that if you're thinking it, someone else has thought it, someone else has deal with it. Like there's probably no issue in the world that I know of that only one person's ever seen or dealt with yeah. and I think once I had that perspective it was it was much much easier yeah uh, and uh, and that's quite 
I, I think I've been enlightened uh, and you've given me so much of insight. Um, but you, you say that you spoke to people, uh, you spoke to your mom uh, and mm. you spoke to people about it. Do you think speaking is the most important thing when, especially you, it took you 24 months to actually, actually mm. like go mm. and uh, go about and confront it and start solving the problem. Yeah. How would you advise to people bes besides the speaking part? Like many people struggle with this here that they can't mm. speak to somebody because they, the fear of judging and, uh, mm. the fear of being, um, I think like society will just gang up upon them. Um, mm -hmm. how, how do you advise to people to do that? Because I, I think I, I've been, I've been open to a lot of things like being on the podcast. I've been learned from so many people like yourself, Sam, um, on how to speak to people. If I'm having a problem, ask for help. There's no, yeah. there's no actual bad thing about it. <laughs> and yes, if people judge you, that's it. But I'd like to hear your view on, on how can people confront certain issues? Yeah, I, I think speaking is would be my number one go-to on, on how to deal with it. But but like you said, it's not always that simple. Start with writing it down. If it's easy to write it down and then give it to someone, do that. Like if, when I eventually figured out what I was struggling with, you know, I, I was so drained from kind of explaining it that, and I didn't felt I explained it well, so I found a video online and that's just what I showed to a lot of my friends and, and, and my dad. I remember I showed him the video because I felt like that was a better way to explain it. So if you're dealing with something, you know, really specific like OCD or pure OCD, that's that's something I use, that's something I did. You know, with depression and stuff, I think writing stuff down or, or writing while you're sad or, or struggling can be a big one. Um, or go and do things that you feel will make you better. You might not actually have to talk about what you're struggling with, but you might know that going for a walk in the park with your friend makes you feel better or going to get a beer with your mate or listening to some music or a Sunday drive. Like there's, there's other ways you can deal with it, but ultimately as scary as it is, talking helps. And often the most uncomfortable thing you should do, you feel you should do is, is usually the right thing to do because it's scary and it's confronting but just give yourself 10 seconds of courage because it's usually the first two or three sentences that are really hard and then once you're on your roll you can get it out and the big thing to remember and there's this this advice kind of goes to two people it goes to the person that's kind of receiving the thoughts from the other person and, and also the person themselves is that whoever you're talking to doesn't they don't need to have the answers they're not there to solve anything I don't know why as humans it works, but they actually just need to be there to listen and, and nod their head and, and yeah, it's it's really tough, man. That sounds terrible. I'm really sorry. Do you want to go and get a beer or a coffee or, you know, and I think people get really scared that, oh, yeah, but I can't help them. Like, what am I going to do? Like, I don't have an answer. You don't. They're helping themselves by talking. They're solving it by talking. Because hmm. it's not till you get it out that it starts to make a lot of sense and and psychologists are amazing as well and they're amazing at their job but they can't help you if you don't talk um so ultimately for me is, is is figure out a way eventually that you can build up the courage to speak about it um but those kind of other things i mentioned are also good tools to have in there yeah and i i actually like the advice it's 100 percent like on par like of what i've done i i think i remember that 
uh, I haven't gone through any mental things personally myself. So Sam, you've enlightened me on that, like I said before. Um, But academics is a, a, I think a ruthless game. It's it's cutting edge. It's just like, it's similar to sports, if you can put it that way. Um, And you've been on both sides. So you can kind of like expand upon me and so Mm. forth. But Mm. I think, I think what, what, what makes you unique is that you've mastered the concept of growth mindset, um, where you always bounce back. It forms, falls into resilience, but it also falls into a topic of a topic of its own. And as an athlete, can you describe why is it or highlight, why is it important to have a growth mindset? It's, it's critical because sports always growing and the world's always moving and people always getting faster. So if you don't grow, you won't be at the top. And if you want to be at the top, you've got to grow. So I think at a, at a, at a simple explanation, that's why you've got to have a growth mindset because you've got to keep up with other people because they do. But you've got to have it because you'll start, everyone's bad before they were good. And in order to get better and better and better, something has to grow. Physically, it's your muscle. Mentally, you've got to get better at performance. As you get better, the competitions get more important. The stakes get higher. There's more people watching. And you have to kind of, your mindset has to continue with with your physical preparation that's taking place. Because if all of a sudden your physical preparation is Olympic level, but you're still back at 15-year-old mental mindset, the two don't stack up and you're not, you're not going to win. You're not going to fulfill your potential. And I think it's also, you know, some people might disagree with this, but I definitely don't want to go through life and just, just stay in the same place. It doesn't really interest me. You know, I always want to be better. I always want to be challenging myself because that's where I find fulfillment. And in the, particularly in sport, it's rewarded. And if you don't do it, you will just stay in the same place and you'll get left behind and you won't make the team. That's pretty simple. Um, and then on the other side in in business and academics it's also similar you know if you're not willing to grow the business if you're not willing to scale it if you're not looking to where you can be better well you're not going to be successful in the market someone's going to overtake you you're going to get left behind and no one will use your product yeah harsh fact and the same in in academics you know you'll you'll stay if if you're in academics to be competitive and to be at the top of the class and to be world leading in your research or whatever it may be you, you've got to keep growing because the research that was done 10 years ago needs to be developed and grown to the modern day and it needs to it needs to change and people are getting smarter and working more efficiently and coming up with new ideas and technology so I guess hope hopefully you see how that kind of aligns over those three different sectors that the top people and, and all of those are always looking for areas where they can be better mm. and they're usually not really good at celebrating the, the small th- the small wins, you know, that's something I try and be better at, but I'm not overly great at is I'm like, okay, cool. I've done that. How do we be better tomorrow? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think we, we got like, um, we got like a hundred percent, like the same mental attitude at this point right now. Uh, and speaking about attitude that I just brought it up, um, it's, do you think attitude and a growth mindset play a big part? Like you spoke about, uh, the attitude of like, always moving forward, always being better than yourself. Do you think it has a factor in, in winning and persevering through all the different, like, um, should I say the situations that you could be in? Do you think that's true? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think having that 
it's a relentless attitude, but it's also a, a positive attitude as well that now we can be better, you know, um, we can be better here or we can grow here or we can, we can do this and you're really positive about what you're doing and, and back yourself. You have, you just have some confidence that you are good at what you do and I think that's a really hard thing to balance as well because, you know, sometimes confidence can come across as arrogance and that can negatively deter away from what you're trying to do. So it's, a, it's about riding that fine line between I'm really good at this I know how to do it and I back myself as opposed to being too big headed and not actually, and missing the right decisions because you're so fulfilled in your own ego. So I think that that attitude piece as you said is is a really key foundation to the to the growth mindset. It's a, it's an aspect of it. Yeah. And, and you speak about ego and that um that it plays a big part in it. Uh and you need to know the fine line between confidence and ego. Uh you don't want to be too confident and shows your egotistical side of you. How does one actually identify that? Because I think I I, I need to I, I need mm. to like learn from that as a, like a learning point for me. Like, where's the point? Where's that breaking point? When do you know? I can tell you a story of when my breaking point was. I was at high school, so I was I was head boy in my final year at St Kent's College, which was an amazing opportunity, and it, it really finished off school really well for me I love school it was amazing and and being head boy in my final year was super special but I remember there was a situation in the lunchroom or something I can't remember the exact details but I said something and my mate kind of pulled me aside afterwards and he said oh you know bro you need to to rate it in a little bit you're getting you're getting a little bit big-headed and it wasn't until he said that someone really close to me, someone who I really love, and I'm still mates with today and really trust, pulled me aside and said, "Oh, look, mate, pull your head in. You're getting, the, you're becoming a bit of an egotistical person." And for me, that was that was the check at 18 years old to go, "Oh, okay, so that's what the behaviour I've I've done over the last, you know, that was that reflection piece over the last six months. That was too big headed. Okay, cool. I kind of understand where that sits now, um, and I I took that forward and. It's probably not until you to you get a perspective from someone else that you can really understand if you're being too too big headed. But I think you can also see it in your decision making. So what I do, I listened to a really interesting podcast which framed my thinking a couple of years ago with the AT and T CEO on a on a series called Finding Mastery. And this guy spent two and a half or three years as a CEO of AT and T, trying to remove his egos from decisions in the boardroom. So he'd go on and go, am I making this decision because I want it or is it the right thing for the company? And it took him a long time. It took him two or three years to get to this point. But he was constantly identifying and reflecting and he'd make some decisions and go, nah, because that made me feel good. That's why I made that decision. So, okay, the ego won that time. I failed. Mm. And that was a really practical way of identifying what he did. And I've, I've tried to apply that where I can and I do it in my own head a lot as you know, am I making this decision in business because I it's going to make me feel good because I've got a little bit more money, and it, and I've I've come up with the idea, but is it actually the right thing to do in the situation we're in? So it's just that reflection piece is massive. You know, you need to to actually question yourself: is it ego or is it the right decision? And um, but but ego it shouldn't be null. Like it's important. It drives you. It fuels you. It's it's who you are. Ego provides confidence, but it's about kind of having this, this fine control over it, like I, I talked about before, which takes time. You'll, you'll stuff it up. 
you'll become egotistical, you'll make a bad decision, you'll become a little bit big-headed. Mm. But sometimes if someone pulls you aside and goes, you, you, you're getting carried away, then you, you step back. Yeah, and, and you're like, um, you're, you're, your friend group, I must say it's 100%, like you, you've really surrounded yourself with people that actually encourage mm. you, they, they make you realize of who you are, but, and they mm. actually like there to make you better. Um, and this kind of this kind of puts into your health and fitness type of thing, your nutritional mm. and your diet and that type of thing. Of how if you were not surrounded by people that were in the same caliber or athletic type of people that you that you are, um, do you think that you would have become an athlete that you are today? It's a good question. I think I would have. Personally, I think I was, I was so, I'm just so focused and, and dedicated that I would have got it done. Has it made it easier? Yeah, a lot, a lot easier. Living in, a, living in a flat with other athletes, you're all cooking the same thing for dinner. You're all kind of looking at the, at the general macros you want to get in, your carb intake, your protein intake, what's happening for the weekend. People understand if you really, t if someone's had a massive train day that the person that's had a quieter one might cook because they've got a little bit more energy. So I think... I would have been able to get to the point I'm in today. It, would, it might have taken me a little bit longer. I might not have learned as much, but I think I could have got to a similar level. But I do think surrounding myself with people on the daily has helped me squeeze out those extra one or two percents that I, I probably wouldn't have got if I just lived with my uni friends who were going out every Saturday. Or um, and particularly in the last two years with COVID, it's been critical, right? Because you've been stuck at home more people have been bringing COVID back because they're out living their lives um whereas we've tried to you know avoid it a little bit more because we've had competitions and stuff coming up so yeah i hope that kind of answers answers the question yeah, yeah and, and sam why don't you expand on what a day of training you you brought it up that there's some days that you have hard some very hard and strenuous training and there's some days that okay it's a little bit softer easier uh, I don't know if easier is the correct term, but more relaxed type of training. Uh, I don't yeah. know if that's, yeah. So yeah, this, this, this could be quite an interesting insight for you. I'll be interested to hear your 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 take after I say it. So this, what I do track sprint cycling is it's it's ATP CP focus. So it's it's essentially zero to 30 second effort is, is what we train. We're power-based athletes. We're more similar to a 100 meter sprinter on a track than we would be say a, a Tour de France cyclist. So. We do a lot of gym work and we do a lot of repeated acceleration work on the track for you know 10 to, to 20 seconds on a range of different gears and a range of different cadences so because we're stressing the muscles so much at a high intensity you don't actually do a lot all the time so a general week for us is monday wednesday friday we'll do a one and a half to two hour gym session in the morning and then we'll do a three hour track session in the afternoon with you know there's a series of different efforts we would do and on the tuesday thursday we would have an easy road ride or a walk or some form of active recovery and then on saturday we'll, we'll have the same and then on sunday we just completely rest so for sprint cycling it's actually re it's six sessions really hard really high intensity recover yeah. hit it hard recover hit it hard recover recover for two days, hit it hard, and you just accumulate accumulate that. So when we have our easy days, they're actually really easy, man. They're, they're super cruisy, um, but you're really tired, you know, so I don't usually do too much. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's quite interesting to hear that. Um, when you say rest, I think this is very very interesting to hear, uh, especially coming from an athlete. What does a rest mean for you? Um, it does that mean like do you lay back, watch some Netflix, or is there something something that you do differently? It does rest mean the same thing that rest means for me. So, for me, rest day a rest day is like do nothing. That's that's like a day off, chill on the couch, go out for lunch or something, just do whatever. An active recovery day or recovery day is is when I get on my bike for an hour and I'd move or I'd go. For, you know, we've, I've started walking a little bit now just to mix things up or you kind of you just want your body to recover and, and move and free everything up so it's ready for the next days of training so that would be the two kind of differentials and when we're resting yeah we watch a lot of netflix i, I like playing playstation sometimes um i love coffee so you know try different coffees or go to cafes or have a look around or um you know i, I actually like doing a bit of work in my in my easy days because it just helps me switch off and, and do something different or um scroll social media man yeah like when you rest you we the the term we've come up with it in the flat is we call it marination so it's like a good a good chicken you just put it in some sauce and, and chill it out in the fridge and then it comes out tasting really good so when you get closer to competition that's when you turn on um, what we call the marination station and mm -hmm. uh and then you, you get the form brewing yeah that's actually quite a cool way to think about rest yeah. uh, you've changed my perspective sam yeah there um, you go man and you spoke about coffee, um, and I know that we've had a previous chat uh, about you. You just um, you just purchased your own coffee roastery, which is very interesting. Tell me more about that. I'd like to hear. Yeah, man. I mean, my coffee journey, I guess, started like when I was in high school. I just started getting a coffee on the way to school from the BP. It started off with a mocha, which I would, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a coffee snob. I would never touch such a thing now from the the BP station. But I just started to love. The culture of it and i moved into a, a flat in um cambridge when i was first up here they had a coffee machine i started making some and then i moved out and i i got my own coffee machine for my 21st birthday and i just loved the process every morning of it was a time to slow down and and you know i could make this thing myself and then i i could drink it and it was really i, I really liked that and then I started getting into the different tastes of the beans you know depending on the origin whether they're brazilian or ethiopian or Colombian and how that the flavor profile tastes and then the different ways you could brew it whether it was you know through espresso which is through high pressure nine bar pressure or through pour over filter which is literally just gravity dropping um water through coffee and I just fell in love with the, the whole culture of it and you know it kind of went hand in hand with cycling a lot of my friends did it and you could always go to to different places around the world and then Recently, I was I, I just really wanted to start roasting my own coffee and selling it to my friends and build a website and, and package it up and you know so the housing market's stupid expensive here at the moment so I thought bugger instead of using that money to buy a house I'll um I'll buy a coffee roaster because that seems like a heck of a lot of fun and so hopefully it's getting delivered uh, this week and then I'll start start roasting and, and selling stuff online which I'm super excited about it's going to be a really cool kind of hobby. Um, to, to add on to you know things outside of cycling and outside of podium as well yeah and we please do send through the website uh, the we'll audience check yeah. it out um, yeah, yeah. it'll be interesting to you and a whole, if you're doing international um, 
uh, shipping and so forth, then yeah, you definitely got your first client here. There we go. Awesome. Um, the big coffee fan as well. Um, yeah. Uh, how do you, how do you how do you drink your coffee? Well, I, I'm I'm more of the creamy type of person, so I enjoy mm. my coffee with lots of milk. Um, yeah. It's it's just the way that I like it. Or if it's a, like a very strained day and so, like that. Yeah. Um, Normally, like a black coffee, like no sugar, no nothing is like the most yeah. potent form. So I will yeah. just gulp it down. And yeah, you can say for that at least three hours, you got me on your, my full zone before I start yeah. wearing it off. It's like my tank is starting to empty. And that's why I, that's why a BP garage is needed or a Seattle coffee yeah. around the corner. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally and how about yourself, Sam? How do you how do you like your coffee? Um, you I have like four. I have like four coffees a day. I usually started off with. I'll make a flat white um, after I have breakfast in the morning. So I usually have breakfast first and then um, make a coffee. And it's a, it's a really good, going back to that reflection piece, it's a really good part of my day that I just use to slow down. I try and put my phone down when I'm when I'm having it first thing and just sit in the corner and, and reflect on, on the day gone and then what I'm kind of up to for the rest of the day. So usually have a flat white and then I'll make a filter as well before I go to training um, and then might make another flat white and another filter or have an espresso or a long black or I honestly like it all. I like exploring kind of the different flavors and, and recipes that, that come out from, from all different types. And I just love pouring latte out, man. So I, that's why I drink flat whites as well. Uh, that's really interesting. And what's, what's your cutoff time for coffee? Because I know like, okay, so coffee has no effect on me, yeah. uh, especially like I can drink it at four o'clock in the evening. I'll oh. probably like go to bed at 10 o'clock and Lucky it has man. no effect on me. Yeah. Um, but after reading Sam, Dr. Sam Walker's um, Why yeah. We Sleep, I don't know if you've read it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I, came, I came across like times in which you're like, okay, rather let's, let's stop with the coffee now. And I've, mm. I've started obeying to it. What time do you stop coffee? About 1 p.m. I, oh, I wouldn't drink, yeah, often after, after 1 p.m. It normally ends up being about 11, 30, 12 o'clock, just because we have track at 1 o'clock. So I usually have a coffee around 11, 30 or 12 because um, I think it's got a six-hour half-life or something. I, I, I can't remember the exact stat um, yeah. of how it dilutes. So the, the, gen, the general thing is, is none after lunch. Um, sometimes if I'm really battling or I just really want a coffee, I might have one at 2 p.m. And to be honest, I'm pretty good. I'll, I'll, sweet, I'll sleep happy days, but on average, not after one. And now I think since we're talking about coffee and it relates to yeah, nutrition, yeah. it's a sort of way like, okay, coffee is nutrition for us as people. Yeah. But when it comes to nutrition and diet and so, that sort of thing, what does your plan look like? Do you have like a dietitian that organizes your plan yeah. and like you stick to that plan? Do you ever deter off, off that plan and what happens when you do? Yeah. Do, do I deter 100% man? Yeah. We're people, you know, we're, we're, we're 25 year old male and females, you know, that live in this flat and I like chocolate. I got a sweet tooth. So sometimes I have that or, you know, have a burger for takeaways. Do I deter? Yeah, hundred percent. But it's the consistency that gets you across the line. And I think that's the big part. So we've got, we've got nutritionists that we work with, you know, they can give you a detailed plan if you want, but a lot of what they encourage us to try and do is, is have understanding of what you're eating and what macros you need to get in. So we work off, at a basic level carbohydrates and protein that we need to get in throughout the day based on the training we have so on like a really cruisy day you don't need to eat 
too much in our sport it's kind of that's where you could maybe hit a deficit if you're trying to lose some weight or you're trying to lean up but then on the days when you have double sessions you really want to ensure you're fueling really well get your timings right that you're eating two hours before your session um, that you're getting the protein in to recover after the amount of carbohydrates and you're getting something in before bed because those are the days where the, the real gains are are to be made um, so yeah sometimes you have a plan down to the down to the number um, and sometimes you just need to to flow with it and and live a little bit um, so at the moment I'll go on a I'll go on a plan as of kind of Thursday to get down to some some racing kind of targets we've set up um, but sometimes you deter you know it's it's hard it's you you, <laughs> you just want to go and get a chocolate bar sometimes so you you go and do it um, and I think that was the big thing I realized when we went to the Olympics is I had this like painted picture that you know when I got there everyone's weighing their thing down to the nth degree and and this and that but you know I saw the someone that won an Olympic medal the night before having a little bit of ice cream so maybe I've just I've just ruined the whole sporting world's myths but we're people you know now, it's nice to know that you you're being very honest about like Olymp athletes to eat ice cream just before mm. um, a match mm. or a or a race or anything like that it's it's thank you for being honest about that um, no worries, man. and I, I think I can I can another similarity between myself and you is that mm. we have a weakness for chocolate so I can cut out anything so when I'm going through like my my sessions and my gym yeah. session and I'm like okay I need to lean, uh, lean up or bulk up or anything mm. like that mm. whatever I'm doing uh, and whatever plan I'm following through the year and so forth I think like chocolate is one thing I don't I, I just put it in part of like okay you can eat it yeah. if i see it I, I, my parents just went to finland recently and they bought this yeah. chocolate from there and uh, it's i think it's called geisha or something like that um yeah. g-e-i-s-h-a yeah. yeah probably somebody can help me uh, pronounce it yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah uh, I probably never get it right and cadbury is like the only one that i probably get right yeah. um but it was like I think that's my weakness. I can f probably finish a bar of chocolate if if it's if I don't control myself. Like a bar of chocolate's gone within yeah. an hour. It's like no problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's chocolate. I I understand the pain. It's it yeah, helps. man. That's why it's just it's too good. But you yeah. you do get to the point. Like I have, if if I really want something, but I'm really trying to hit a goal. Like there is, it's not super ideal, but there's ways you can manipulate your diet to ensure your caloric intakes the same at the end of the day even if you've you've factored in for that chocolate bar like if you're on an easy day for us as sprinters it's it's protein pulsing that's really key so you can't just have your protein all at the end of the day you can't just have 200 grams of protein at 6 p.m you need to kind of trickle it throughout the day and ensure it's pulsing to maintain the muscle mass but with the carbohydrates whilst not ideal you can afford to just backload it at the end of the day so you could just have a real low carbon take breakfast and lunch because you've decided that you're going out for dinner and you're going to have a lot more and you're going to have your, your carbs then so there's there's ways that once you understand you can manipulate to enjoy those little things in life by making some little sacrifices here and there yeah uh and it'll be interesting to you you're well aware that all sorts of foods carbohydrates proteins lipids fats all, all of those things have an impact on our behavior performance yeah. whatever it is um, how do you keep yourself on the straight and narrow part of keeping to your meal plan and 
uh, especially those days when it's coming close to a competition, how do you keep, where's that mindset going? How do you actually like say, okay, besides the fact that, yes, I got a competition coming up, um, I, I need to keep on that there. Um, I think I've always enjoyed cooking. So I've like found ways to, to be creative in that. And, and you can make really flavorsome, like, I don't know what the people's perception on what an athlete might eat, but it's like, it's not chicken and rice like a bodybuilder eats. It's not super simple nutrients. Like we're making curries with heaps of spices and really nice food. And you know, the, the caloric intake still, it still matches up. Spices have pretty much nothing in them. You know, they're just, they're just a powder. There's, there's pretty much no calories in veggies. So you can, you can beef it up with a salad. Like it's, I just like what we eat. Like it's, it's enjoyable to eat stuff when you get close to the race day you're usually so nervous that you don't want to eat so you're actually doing the opposite which is force eating you're trying to just you're just sitting there with like a spoon and you're just trying to like force it down yeah particularly race day morning you're trying to get up and have 100 grams of carbs and your 30 grams of protein and you kind of just bobbled with your head over the bowl just like licking it like a cat trying to get it in so that's the that's the opposite that becomes really hard and when you train really hard you're often I find when I train really hard, I'm often not super hungry. And then on the easy days, I'm really hungry. So some days you've just got to force this food down you. And, and for me, that mindset piece is now this is part of the job. Today's Today eating is a chore. It's not a luxury. It doesn't feel good, I know. But it's, it's part of fueling the tank today. Yeah. Um, and you just, you leading to competition, like you said, you just have that perspective that this, this will help me perform on, on race day. And that's your bigger goal. And that tastes a lot better than maybe that that chocolate bar or that bigger bit of meal that you want to have. Yeah, and finally, before we wrap up, Sam, like we've come to the almost to the end of the podcast oh, yeah. session. So, I'd like to hear your perspective on sleep. Uh, and as an mm. athlete, um, I'm sure that sleep plays a vital role in your performance, how you your attitude towards different things uh, whilst training yeah. or during a competition. So, mm. whilst you're training, what is your sleep? look like uh, uh, your sleep pattern and what when it comes to competitions and so forth what what does it what does your sleep pattern look like then or sleep times look like yeah my sleeping's pretty consistent year round like i've always been uh, uh go to bed early rise early i'm just a i can't i can't log big hours for whatever reason so i usually go to bed around 9 30 10 o'clock um and wake up you know that on days we have gym at 8 a.m i get up around six just because i like to be moving and fueled by the time i get to the gym so um but on an easy day wake up around seven or eight a.m so i'm getting about anywhere between eight to, to ten hours a night which is which is pretty much what we need um and then sometimes nap during the day just 20 30 minutes um, maybe an hour if i'm i'm really cooked but it's vital and you've and you've got to make time for it and Particularly when you're racing, it's really hard to unwind and fall asleep. So, you know, I've tried meditation in the past to kind of calm yourself down or read a book or, you know, I find just honestly just watching Friends on Netflix sometimes just, just flicks your brain off. For me, the big one, though, is um, being kind of getting my room at an optimal temperature. I can't sleep very well if it's too hot. Um, I sleep really well if it's cold and I really like white noise so I'm pretty high maintenance sleeper so I've got like a aircon unit um, in my room that I just got over summer and it's just been an absolute life 
um, changer to my sleep and I've been able to sleep all the way through the night. I haven't been waking up. Um, and I can, I can feel that that's directly kind of had a benefit on my performance because I've been able to recover better. And when you can recover better, you can back up more training days. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and this this comes to the part of like you know that you know that um, weakness that we have. So some of uh, a lot of us have iPads or our cell phones yeah. that yeah, play yeah. Netflix. Um, and before bed, what what is what, do you have your iPad or your cell phone next to you uh, on a bed stand next to you, or do you leave it in front of the room? Because one of my weaknesses is that during a holiday. I, I, I take advantage of the fact that I can sit in bed and I can watch Netflix yeah. although I fall asleep on the iPad within like 30 minutes and be like blaring yeah. at, at midnight and you wake up yes. uh, it, it's and you'd be like watching MacGyver and you I've been watching MacGyver recently so I was like wait what what yeah. is happening and I have to rewind yeah. like four episodes back and like trying yeah. to figure out where I am um yeah. but how do how do you how do you actually arrange that mm -hmm. like how do you mm -hmm. discipline yourself in order to like Okay, no phone after this time, no blue light after this time. How do you actually come across? Yeah, that? I'm not. I'm probably not super good. I I could be a lot better with my phone. Like I'll I'll look at my phone or my screen for as long as I'm in the lounge. Like I don't I don't sit in the lounge with no TV on or, or phone. But when I come into my bedroom, um, I've my desk where I'm sitting at now is like away from my bed. I just have a wireless charger, so I just put my phone down there and I go to bed. But I think. The probably key thing that I do is I just sleep in my bed. Like I, I don't hang out in my room. I don't lie on my bed and, and scroll my phone or on my laptop. I have a desk that I do my work at. I have the lounge that I hang out and watch TV. So I think when I get to my bed, my body's like, this is where we sleep. Um, and I think that's, that's the really powerful thing in my routine is that my brain knows that when I'm in a bed, I sleep and it instantly kind of gets tired so i just make sure i put my phone down i turn my alarm on you know i might read a book for 10 minutes um or i just fall straight asleep um but sometimes on recovery days you know i might want to cheat a little bit so i, I do lie in bed and, and watch a little bit of netflix on my phone but i kind of see it as a treat and then i'm quite good at just going out to you know tomorrow's quite an important day put your phone down and um go to sleep yeah, and yeah, I I can relate to a few few parts of those part, parts of your your routine, your night uh, your night mm -hmm. routine. Um, during school days, it's like quite different. Um, iPad, all of that moves to the front. It's at least like my room is not that big, although it's five meters away from me yeah, at yeah. a good distance, and all the charges are in front, so there's no electromagnetic waves near yeah. me or anything like that. Um, yeah, there's no. Uh, my lamp next next to my bed is mainly for reading so if you like try put a blue light there it's something it distorts the light quite a bit so it's like oh, actually okay, cool, hard man. to read it um it, it was actually one of these really really cheap lamps that you just like find at like some random yeah. like lamp shop and yeah it really works well and nothing fancy or anything like that um yeah. yeah for me that that's the way i see it for school but on a weekend uh, or well weekends are not really a weekend it's uh, i still work at a pharmacy and so forth so i yeah. weekend like i come home at eight really hours eight, i'm like ready to like just jump on the bed i'm like i'm out um yeah but, i think i think for you like it sounds like you obviously lead this incredibly um busy and amazing life for such a young person but kind of those weekends or those evening times for you and bed that's that's your you time that's your downtime and i think there's there's a lot of value in that um and we're not all perfect we can't all get the perfect sleeping routine like it's actually really hard to do 
and I think you know at, at your age and for the younger people out there it's it's okay sometimes to, to take that time to just lie in bed and and have a bit of you time um, is, is important as well so yeah yeah and Sam your insight has been tops today uh, which is really great um, and we're gonna finally head off into the final expandable mind traditional rapid-fire questions um, and the first question goes to you it's the what are, who are the most three most influential people in your life and how have they impacted you uh, my mum my dad who's the third one can I leave it at two yeah sure yeah I'll leave it at those yeah th those mum and dad and, and to be honest just my close family my brother and sister have been the most kind of impactful people um i've had and i actually I'll, I'll throw um callum saunders in there who i've talked about a lot he's he's a amazing friend of mine and he's really prompted a lot of questions and 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 challenged me to to look at life uh, a lot of different ways um which I've, I've really valued and really valued him as a friend so yeah um if you could go back to your 18 years uh, 18 year old self um what would be one piece of advice you would give to yourself? Chill out a little bit. Don't don't take everything so seriously. You've got a you've got a lot of years ahead of you. Um, sometimes have that extra beer that you don't think you should have, or, or just go and hang out with your friends because one night isn't going to make the difference. Um, would be the the advice I'd, I'd give to a younger me. Um, that, that I, I can actually, I, I need to start doing that myself. So there you go. you've given me um, some. Advice. That's what I'm advising you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you if you could have a cup of coffee, um, which since you are a coffee type of guy, yeah. which historical figure would you want to sit with, or it can even be a, somebody that's upcoming if you'd like. I think Winston Churchill would be a really, that'd be an interesting cup of tea. Or cup of coffee, um, something like that. There's, it's hard to pick one because there's so many from that kind of era where the world was evolving and there was so many things um, changing. Uh, yeah, him or, or Nelson Mandela would be, would be pretty amazing. Hmm, cool. Um, uh, second second guest on the podcast. I I think um, uh, one of uh, another guest, a doctor. Uh, Dr. British Vellab, he was actually he actually also chose Nelson Mandela as a as a person. Oh, wicked man! Yeah. yeah, I think just just an inspirational character and did unbelievable things, and you know that would be a that'd be interesting to kind of ask him these these types of questions, right? Like, what was you know what was going through your mind when when all this was going down? Yeah, South African South African history it's filled with that. Mm. Um, I, th I think from grade four all the way to grade ten, I learned about like what happened during mm. apartheid. Nelson Mandela played a key role. So, you, if you would like to quiz, yeah, be yeah. be free to already start. Yeah. Um, yeah. What is the most important lesson you've learned over your journey thus far? That the sun will come up tomorrow. Probably is that you know it will get better and it'll pass it'll pass yeah uh if you could change one thing in your journey uh what would it be that 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 piece of advice i gave i gave to my younger self just chill out a little bit mate just live life a little bit more because okay. you're you're a pretty amazing character and you're going to do some cool things but enjoy it along the way 
Yeah. And which I'm learning now. You know, my journey's not over. I got I got many years to live. Um, so I've I've learned it sooner rather than later. But yeah, that's one yeah. thing I wish I wish I'd known. Time to relax is important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that comes to the end of the podcast episode. Thank you so much, Sam. Yeah, uh, it's it's been amazing talking to you. Your insight has really opened my eyes, uh, given me more more uh, broader view, taken off the blinkers. Um, your journey on on finding podium, your athletic um, your athletic track cyclist journey, and so forth. It's just like really amazing, and to see how it relates in some sort of retrospective way to the academic world that I'm in. It's interesting to hear the different perspectives and so forth. And I think our guests are, I think they, they must be stoked to hear your journey. And yeah, we, I hope that they've enjoyed it. Um, any last comments from you, Sam? No, oh, just, just thanks so much for having me on, man. It's been a, a wicked conversation. Um, I think you're an inspirational character in yourself. I mean, the things you're doing at, at 17 years old um, are, are, are pretty amazing, but you know, take some time to enjoy it that would be my uh my parting words um and i think you're doing doing a really cool thing with this podcast and it's it's playing a really key role in in this this conversation that that is mental health thanks so much sam really appreciate the words to our listeners out there thank you for listening links that were mentioned during the episode are in the show notes if you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a five-star rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at expandable underscore mine. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.